This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Ann Jones and this is Off Track, a show all about the outdoors and humans' place within it. Take a listen to this one that I've pulled up from the Off Track back catalogue, originally played in 2014. For... Oh, look, I think any golfer will tell you, you know, when you catch it just right and have that pure connection, you know, it just feels just, just as good as any other time. And that's what brings people back to golf. It's that pure connection that just is effortless, you know. It's one of the only sports where the boarder sits there and looks at you and says, hit me badly, you know. It's sitting there at the same place, not moving, and you're the, you're the one who has to, you know, make something happen. You're in a clearing on a slope, surrounded by trees. Brightly coloured parrots dart across the open space from thicket to thicket. And you could be in a fairy tale place. It's so idyllic. The soft green grass looks perfect for a picnic. It looks as if a fairy castle could await you under the pines if you only lifted that branch. Instead, there's a golf buggy with two people in polo shirts, teeth gritted, bum cheeks clenched as they go around the steep edge of the sand trap. And a frustrated man with a seven iron is fossicking for his ball under the trees. Welcome, off-track listeners, to the golf course. There are thousands like it. Places of freedom. Places of frustration. We're at Moor Park Golf Course, a green oasis on the edge of Sydney's CBD. And we're going to meet some locals. James Gribble is a lovely young man in his 30s. He's wearing a collared shirt and chinos, he's worked in the finance industry and he's exactly the sort of bloke that you'd expect to find on a golf course. You don't normally have to strap yourself in for a round of golf. James Gribble does. Well, look, golf has always been a massive part of my life. It's enriched my travel experiences, my corporate experiences even, and a lot of my friends are, are golfers. And I suppose when I had my accident a couple of years ago, it was just taken away from me in a heartbeat and uh, I always wanted to get back into golf. I was a young guy. I went travelling in, in Africa after using, losing my job in London and after only being there for about a month, I managed to fall backwards off a stool I was sitting on after a long run and, and broke my neck and damaged my spinal cord, rendering me a quadriplegic. So day one, I literally had no movement from my head down and I embarked on a a long journey back to physical recovery, focusing on you know, trying to get back to walking and get back to life. And really it was only after four years that I managed to finally stand up on crutches and take a few steps. And once I could stand up, I thought, well, hang on, I can play golf again. And uh, the first day that I tried was literally standing there on my crutches, relatively unstable and throwing the right one away and asking someone to strap a golf club to my hand because my hand function's not great and make a swing on the ball. But even though I managed to connect a couple of times, it wasn't safe for me or anyone involved really. Uh, I started looking around and finally I found this amazing piece of equipment, the Paragolfer, which replicates golf as well as I found and you know, it's pretty much given golf back to me, which is obviously one of the most amazing things that you know has been part of my recovery. The Paragolfer is like a really beefy electric wheelchair, 
The golfer is strapped into it around the waist and the knees and has control to move it all around backwards and forwards and to turn it tightly. It's all-terrain, and how it differs from the most bulky of wheelchairs is that it stands the golfer up into an almost upright position and supports them there. That way, they're able to swing without worrying about toppling over. Look, my swing is pretty much a swing made out of necessity. So in my case, I have very little movement or feeling from my chest down. So my swing is with my right arm, which is the better of the two, which I'd say is about 50% of what it used to be. And I don't have any, any real movement in my, in my wrists or my hands. I have a specialized glove, which allows me to wrap my hand around the club and then strap the Velcro over the top. And then I actually leave the club a little bit loose in my hand so that I get a lot more swing play, a lot more arc, which is probably counterintuitive having, for any golfer having a loose golf club in your hand because you know, most people need a really tight grip to get the control. But in my case, to get the distance or try and get as much distance, I need the leverage of the hand being a bit, a bit softer. So it's literally a normal, normal address and then I bring the club back almost as far as my, my function, my shoulder gets up over my head and then bring it back as, as powerfully as I can. The game itself is almost like a metaphor for life. It takes you on this roller coaster every time you play, from missing a short putt to an amazing drive. You know, it's, it's probably one of the most challenging and psychological games you can play. I think being out and about on a golf course is a pretty powerful thing. You know, you are you're using muscles that you probably weren't using as much before. You're standing up, which for anyone who's paralysed and, and can't stand up themselves is very, very good health-wise. So from your, your breathing to your general functionari- functionality is, uh, is pretty paramount. And then really one of, the, one of the key things about being back out on the golf course is accessing the community that every golf club is because unfortunately in society people in wheelchairs have a lot of barriers, barriers with access, barriers with communication and it's very empowering for others seeing someone who has pretty much no movement from his chest down standing up and hitting golf balls on a golf course. It's, it's a pretty powerful thing. Gribble now devotes much of his time to spreading the word about golf and has started an organisation called Empower Golf, which advocates for players of all abilities and is lobbying to have golf included as a Paralympic sport. Pretty much every time I go out on the course, I have someone come up and ask me about what the machine is and how impressive it is that you know, someone in, within a disability like yourself can play golf. So that's one of the biggest drivers is trying to show people that there's 20% of the country is disabled, yet most golf courses you know, wouldn't have one of their members even disabled. So there's over a million people who play golf every year, over 6% of the country, and it's the biggest ball sport across Australia. So there should be a lot more disabled people competing and playing. And there doesn't have to be a lot of work to all these golf courses to make that happen. It's, there's so much space. All they really need to do is make sure their facilities within the clubhouse and things are set up and then have a paragolfer and they can pretty much be signed off as 100% wheelchair or disabled friendly. One of the key things is really empowering the individual with choice. Choice to access the game, choice to enjoy the game and choice to play the game again with friends and their communities.
Moorpark Golf, in the Centennial Parklands in Sydney, has a paragolfer available for public use. It's an incredibly powerful machine, in more ways than one. And they've also recently upgraded their driving range to have automatic tees too, so that the golfer doesn't have to bend down to practice their swing. Cal Walker from Moorpark Golf showed me around the three-storey driving range. Well, Moorpark's driving range is one of those uh, unique experiences, I guess. We have about 140,000 buckets of golf balls sold here every year, so about 14 million golf balls hit on the driving range. There's about 60 bays that we have on the driving range here. Um, it's very, uh, very packed, especially on weekends. Um, but, you know, all different times throughout the day and, and night, we have all sorts of people here. And of those 15 million balls a year, how many of them do you put out? <laughs> Not as many as I'd like, let's put it that way. All right, so if you've been to a driving range, you will be aware that there is normally a person on a tractor who drives around the driving range area picking up the balls with a special contraption on the front. The tractors are normally covered in cages because it seems that everyone loves to aim at a moving target. How does it feel to know that they're all aiming at us right now? Uh, well, after a while you get annoyed when they keep hitting you and they keep aiming at you. It gets frustrating and annoying, but uh, we're usually pretty safe in here. It just makes a really loud bang when they actually do hit you. It gives you a shock sometimes when you're not ready. Dealing with an annual 14 million golf balls slogged from one end of the range to the other requires some specialised equipment, including a little tractor with a special ball collector on the front. That's what we've just been driving in. It has a special plastic drum covered in ridges just the width of a golf ball. And as the drum rolls over the ball, each sphere is grasped and then flung into buckets. It's mesmerising to watch. There'd be maybe a thousand, maybe... 2,000 balls, roughly, by the time that we do a couple of laps and fill up all the buckets. But how do the balls get from ground level to the top of the immense driving range structure? This is uh, the return pit. So what we do is come along and we empty the balls by tipping the buckets directly into the pit and they go through into the system. Right. So we'll tip one in. We'll just go along and do all five buckets. They go down onto the bottom tray, and the tray feeds through into the uh, into our hopper room where it goes into the actual hoppers. All right, so once they're in the pit, they come through into a water bath, and they, then they'll come up uh, to an elevator, and then they'll go through a washing machine up into the main hopper. Right, okay, so they, they do get a good clean. Does it affect the flight? Uh, eventually, over time, it will affect the flight because what it is, is it's more about the size of the dimples. Uh, the dimples are the ones that actually make it fly. Without a dimple, it'll sort of do whatever these weird and wacky things on the range. So, so I can blame the dimple from now on? Absolutely. Right. <laughs> so once they're in, in the main hopper, which is our storage area, we probably have about room for about 60,000 golf balls in there. They then come through into this feed tray feed tray will then produce it, uh, send the balls through uh, into a tube, into a blowing machine and the blower will blow them up a pipe through to the actual um, range itself. 
I'm not sure how strong it is, but uh, it takes a couple of seconds for the balls to fly down the tube and up to the top level of the range. So we might send some up to the top level. Does the management of a golf course take away from your enjoyment of golf? Not at all. Not at all. I, I get to work in, in an environment that I enjoy, you know, socially as well as, you know, coming to work. Um, how many businesses that, you know, you can be an administration manager and walk outside the door and you've got a golf course outside your door instead of a brick jungle as the CBD is. Cal Walker talks and walks like a man who sincerely believes he works in heaven. He does have a single-figure handicap too. You're listening to Off Track with Ann Jones. Today, hitting off the yellow tees as a visitor playing a full round at Moorpark Golf Course. A golf course is a place of amazing tranquility, an idyllic setting of green meadows and stands of trees, tanned people escaping their everyday grind. But it takes a lot of work to create such a paradise. Mal Durkin only knows that too well. He's the superintendent at Moorpark Golf and he's driving the golf cart. There's a lot of work involved. There is so much cutting of the golf course, uh, cutting of grass. You know, we've got eight hectares of fairways, we've got a hectare of tees, two hectares of greens, and there's about 65 hectares all in total of rough that need to be cut, you know, all week round. We double cut the greens three times a week and single cut them. Um, a single cut takes about four and a half hours. So there's a lot of time just in doing a job, and then those jobs are virtually done every day of the week and then trying to fit in the extras around that as well is uh, very time consuming. The weather is a, is a challenge. First thing in the morning, it could be raining or like what we've got at the moment, you know, we've got strong winds, heat, it all changes seasonally. There is really a different challenge every day of the way. It's just, you look around, it's unseen to the golfer, but the things that go on behind the scenes, there are insects all over the place that are destroying the grass 24 hours a day. No one knows that and you know, Lawn mowers break down, you know, the, the challenges are, are varied and you never know when something's going to change at the drop of a hat sort of thing. When playing golf, you may only perceive you're in a monologue. You may become stuck in the tranquility of the course. But actually, the place is alive with tractors and mowers and golf carts zooming workers around from one hole to another and working around the players as they play through. Apart from the frustration of playing out of the rough, it's unlikely that the golfers think much about the species of grass that they're playing off. Their mind is in another place. Is the type of grass that you plant on a green different than the type of grass that you plant on a fairway? They're totally different grasses. The two grass species we've got on the greens are cool season grasses. We've got bent grass, that's its common name, and also winter grass, which is called scientifically power annua. Those two grasses thrive when it's a little bit cooler and then they take a lot of work in summer to keep them alive. The grass on the fairways and the tees is kaikuyu, which loves the warm weather and just jumps out of the ground, so we then have to do other things to actually control its growth. R right. 
as in mowing or what? Uh, mowing and there's also a there's a product it, it's a growth retardant that we put onto the onto the Kaikuyu to actually slow the plant down growing so it means instead of having to go out and mow the grass every day of the week we can mow it two three times a week which helps us do other things at the same time. Because I noticed that even coming out there was a section that was being mowed and the section on the side, which I assume has already been mowed at some point, you know, Mm. in the last four days, he was taking off a good inch and a half at least of growth off that. Yeah, that's uh, (laughs) a good observation. Um, Yeah, no, that's what what happens. The Kaikuyu fairways, we we cut those at a height of 15 mil. The greens are cut at a height of 3 mil. So there's a big variation and then right out to our roughs, which are cut at, you know, 55 mil, which is five and a half centimetres. So there is a huge variation in the height of cut. And on the greens, the height of cut then relates back to the speed of the ball roll, the smoothness, how healthy they are. So they need a hell of a lot of work on the greens to be able to keep them, you know, consistently good all the time. As we move around the course in a golf buggy, we pass a fantastic machine where a greenskeeper is whizzing across a green sideways. There's a heavy set of rollers underneath him and he squeezes the grass in lines across the flat surface. It's it's a lot harder than what people think and it takes a lot of work to actually get the surfaces that we've got. You know, we have uh, an irrigation system that, that, you know, we have four pumps on the golf course that put out 24 litres a second of water. We do a lot of fertilising on different areas just you know mainly our playing surfaces we then apply a lot of wetting agents to try and hold the moisture in the soil we go and put out insecticides to make sure that we're and they're pre-emergent products that sort of get rid of the insects before they actually hatch and do the damage there's a lot of mechanical mowing or or cultural practices like scarifying um, dethatching you know verti draining which is punching holes into the ground taking soil out of the ground and then top dressing it and as well as mowing so it causes a lot of damage to the plant so it's always got to be in a healthy state. There's heaps of work you're administering a complex set of menstruations to this environment what consideration do you take in terms of environmental practice because any one of these retardants, insecticides, fertilisers could potentially be of damage to the surrounding environment. So how do you approach that? We try and minimise any real dangerous products that we use. We use a lot of wetting agent to be able to make sure that we, we keep the soil moist all the time to enable the grass to grow optimally. The use of fungicides, we we use it sparingly, but it needs to be used because there are so many diseases that are around in turf that the home gardener doesn't see on his home lawn. We've got here a beautiful green open space, which although is not a sort of native environment, it is still really good for having trees and that kind of Um, recreational space for people as well as habitat for wildlife. Amara Glynn is the Environment Officer at Centennial Parklands. Even though it's a very controlled environment, she says that it's still an important place for people to connect with the outdoors right in the middle of a busy city. Yeah, I definitely think there's that appreciation of the outdoors because 
you're interacting with nature in that you've got the grass under your feet, you're looking at the sky, um, trying not to hit the trees. <laughs> so what sort of wildlife would we expect around here? We would have brush-tailed possums as well as microbats. We did a survey, a um, bat detector survey earlier this year and found Gould's wattled bat as well as flying foxes would fly over and um, feed within Park as well. What do you consider to be the challenges in terms of the environment on a golf course such as this? Mm, that's a good question. I think maintaining those important pockets of native habitat, that's really something that golf courses have done well. You'll see across the eastern suburbs, patches of eastern suburbs, Banksia scrub remnants, which is now an endangered ecological community, and many of those patches are on golf courses. So, you know, here we have the opportunity to have habitat creation and to plant those native species and recreate what may have been here in the past and really just have that, that environment for people and for wildlife. Neither the golfers nor the resident birds seem too distracted by the incredibly loud jets that take off from the airport, which is only seven kilometres away as the plane flies. Mal Durkin, who's been with this course for 20 or so years, doesn't blink an eyelid as they roar past. There's a lot of heavy end maintenance stuff that goes on, especially reconstruction work. We've just finished reconstructing a couple of bunkers over the last couple of months. We've also constructed some pathways. We've just rebuilt a turf nursery, which is what that earthworks is behind us. And in the last couple of years, we've, we've rebuilt a couple of greens as well. So it's, it's just not the daily maintenance that we're doing. It's, it's also major reconstruction work to, to take us into the future. Because how often do you change the tea length and the design of the holes? That sort of thing doesn't change very often. Say, you, for example, your greens are, are constructed originally. You might be able to get a number of years lifespan out of those, but eventually they get to a point where they, you know, they start to fall over by themselves just because of the amount of use and compaction and work that's gone on with them. So you sort of you know, bulldoze them and start them again. And... Um, so you might, you might do that maybe every, every, possibly every 30 years to, for a new green. Well, can you um, take me up there and show me the turf nursery? Absolutely. I'd be interested to see that. It's not very flashy, Anne. It's not, 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 not a lot to see. But, uh... So what we've got here is essentially a beautiful flat square. It looks like I could play a game of croquet on it, actually. It looks absolutely gorgeous in an area where there is no playthrough unless someone really slices it and it's essentially just a square of turf so what will you do with it from here? This is about 300 square metres of, of nursery and it's purely here to go and repair vandalism which we get a fair bit of around here because we're in the middle of a fairly heavily populated area that's got you know football events going on and a lot of traffic around the place we've got four major arterial roads around us we've got a few fences around the place but the place is accessible it's a shortcut to many areas so we quite often have vandalism over weekends uh, and this area is this is what we use to actually repair that vandalism you've clearly got a green thumb though right i'd like to think i had a green thumb but it takes a hell of a lot of work so what's your lawn like at home? My lawn is, is atrocious at home. 
<laughs> it's dreadful. There's more weeds in my backyard than there is on the golf course. Mal Durkin, Amara Glynn, Cal Walker and James Gribble can all be found on the greens at Moore Park in Sydney, lowering their handicaps bit by bit. And I can be found over at the RN website where I'll be practising my short game. Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and then use the program menu to find Off Track. You can leave a message of support for my nascent mini-golf career, look through the back catalogue of programs, subscribe to the fresh ones and inspect the greens for divots. Remember also to keep on listening to RN for your intellectual pitch and putt 24 hours a day on air and online. And I'll meet you at the 9th at the same time next week. And from there, we'll be off on another adventure somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.